A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Chapter 4. Back to the Burrow. By 12 o'clock the next day, Harry's trunk was packed with his school things and all his most prized possessions. The invisibility cloak he had inherited from his father, the broomstick he had got from Sirius, the enchanted map of Hogwarts he had been given by Fred and George. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Vanessa, before we get to our story this week, and we've got a special guest sharing a story. Ooh. Ooh. I wanted to do a couple of business items. First of all, it feels like a lot of people have been listening to the show and they're now finally caught up. They've gone through all three seasons and they're like, okay, I'm ready. Slash, I have to wait a week before the next episode. So welcome if you've arrived in real time. We're so glad to have you with us. And a little judgmental that you fell behind. <laughs> what were these other things that you were doing? I mean, welcome. You're late. But, but welcome sit down. now. <laughs> um, and we also have our live show coming up in Atlanta. It's on Wednesday, the 8th of November. Tickets are still available. We'd love to see you. It's going to be a great show. Now let's welcome our special guest for today, Zach Kersey. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Casper. Zach, you and I talk like regularly. Regularly quite regularly. And this is the first time I've seen you in like three years. Several years. Yeah. Yes. You look great. Thank you. You look awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Although, Zach, you have you have a little scar on your forehead, which looks kind of like a lightning scar. I appreciate your commitment. <laughs> I have a thin lightning shaped scar directly in the middle of my forehead currently, and it didn't happen in a very fun or like attractive way at all. Oh, no. I mean, what happened? Well, I was washing my hair and a hangnail caught my forehead <laughs> smack in the middle and took a slice out of my forehead. Oh. <laughs> I'm yeah. glad that you wash your hair. Yeah, I do. I don't have much hair, but I still need to wash my scalp. Little known fact for other bald men out there. So, Zach, we're so excited to have you here. And we should say for our listeners, Zach is the lead pastor at Simple Church, which is a dinner church in rural Massachusetts, where folks gather around a table for a meal and good conversation and worship. He was an old classmate of ours from Harvard Divinity School, and he plays fabulous guitar. How many locations do you guys have now? We just started our second branch in Worcester, Massachusetts on the 24th of October 
It meets on Tuesday nights. Um, look for it in the future if you're interested in coming and seeing us. We'd love to have you at the table. And it's really just such a beautiful program. So you guys bake bread and farm in order to subsidize the work that you do. Yes. So we, we bake bread and we sell it at local farmers markets. And that's how we support the ministry. We also um, work with a local organic farm. That's where we get all of our, our local food. So it costs very little from week to week, but it's all built around conversations, um, very similar to the conversations that you guys have on this podcast, which is you know finding meaning in a text and then relating it to yourself and finding what it means for all of us together and as individuals through our conversations together. So Zach, we're reading chapter four through the theme of mystery. What's the story that you have to share with us today? I will never forget the strangeness of the feeling of the first night that our foster daughter, A, moved into our house. We had gotten a call at about 12 o'clock in the afternoon saying there's a little girl who needs to be placed in a foster home immediately. The home that she's been in has too many children. She needs to be out of there very fast. We don't have anybody currently that we can place her with, and we need it done by 4 p.m. tonight, or she's going to have to stay the night at the DCF offices, which is the Department of Children and Families. And so, of course, my wife and I looked at each other across the breakfast table, and we were like very unsure about you know what we were getting ourselves into, what we were committing to, but we said, yeah, you know, send her along. We, like The thought of her sleeping at the DCF office was just not good for us. So we wait in like the longest four hours of my life. And then finally, after just sitting around nervously, we see a car pull up and we see this little girl with two little pigtails get out of the car and just kind of amble over to our front door holding the social worker's hand. And she comes through the door and she looks right at me and she goes, you're daddy. And then she points to my wife and she goes, you're mommy. And she goes, where am I sleeping? <laughs> so we take her in and we show her where she's sleeping. We do all of these things that we've never had to do before. We get a little girl bathed and her hair brushed and her teeth brushed. And we put her in pajamas and we put her like in her bed. We feed her dinner. We put her in her bed and we turn off the light and we just sit there and we tell her a story. We put our hand on her chest and we could feel her heart just pounding in her chest. And, you know, she was so nervous. It was completely new for her. And it was completely new for us. And we had no idea what we were doing at all. And then, like, like, finally she fell asleep. And so we tiptoed to our room and we closed the door. And my wife and I just looked at each other wide-eyed and terrified because all of these mysteries were just so present to us. You know, who was this child going to grow up to be? Who were we going to grow to be to her? And the most pressing question, and this is a question that still sits with us over two years later, is she going to get to stay? Is she going to get to be ours forever? And so that's the question that has been haunting me for the last couple of years, you know, the mystery of, you know, whether this child is going to be ours to keep forever or just for a little while. But it was only by stepping into those mysteries fully that the real magic that I've experienced in the last couple of years has come to life. And that, that magic is that 
there wasn't a family and now there's a family. I wasn't a dad and suddenly I'm a daddy. And that magic, you know, it didn't happen with a flash. There was no waving of a wand. But the magic of just simply walking into a mystery with an open heart and saying, no matter what happens, no matter if I get hurt, no matter if we open ourselves up to disappointment and sadness, we're going to give everything that we can to this kid and make, make a family together. So as I read chapter four today, back to the burrow, I see the Weasleys all together stepping in to this hostile environment to pluck up this child who they've chosen to love and who they've chosen to make theirs and saying, you're already ours. We're coming to claim you. We're coming to like make you part of our family. They literally burst through the walls and go in and bring him into a home of love and care and messiness. And I think that that's a really beautiful story that all of us can look at and say, this is, this is what we can do to each other, especially the most vulnerable among us. Zach, thank you for that beautiful story. I know that A is not the name of your first foster daughter, that you used a replacement name, but I'm so glad she came into your life because you are the best curator of hysterical things that your daughters say on Facebook. Thank you. Most people bore us on Facebook with like photos of their children. And you, I think in part to protect their anonymity, you don't post photos of them, but you post the funniest things that these two people say. I love that it started with, where am I sleeping? (laughs) Where am I sleeping? (laughs) Well, and that's even another level of of mystery that I picked up in your story, which is, especially if a child is coming into your home, not as an infant, but already grown and with a real personality, there's a whole nother way of learning to get to know each other and to love each other. And the way your two girls kind of demand their eggs to be done this way or their cereal to be made that way, I think just illustrates the ways in which some of those mysteries of love have, have already been cemented. Right. You know, and I should say that, you know, my wife and I are now the proud parents to two foster children who are pre-adoptive. We're actively endeavoring to adopt them um, and bring them into our home forever. Um, but because they're not fully adopted yet, we can't post pictures of them or say their name on podcasts about Harry Potter. <laughs> and um, so I feel like the way that I'm able to present these two little girls' personality is through stories that paint a picture of who they are, even if I can't ever you know, post the cool, proud parent pictures on Facebook that we've all come to love. Can I just, this is a recent Facebook post yes, that please. you posted. Yeah. Okay. So you said to the girls, what do you girls want to be for Halloween? And T said, Wonder Woman. And A responded, Wonder Woman's mom. <laughs> I just love, because like, that's like typical sibling yes. amazingness. <laughs> Yes. And so they have become like sisters, right? They are not biological sisters. No, so they're not they're not biological sisters, but they are almost exactly one year apart. And so one thing that I've realized now is like a sibling's like unique capacity to see any type of affection shown to another sibling as a slight <laughs> against the other. And so like if I give my oldest daughter any kind of compliment or my youngest daughter any kind of compliment, the other one will be just distraught that I didn't say it to them. And so one time I said to my youngest, hey, good job doing that coloring thing or good job spelling your name. I can't remember exactly. But then my oldest daughter bursts into tears, just 
full waterworks. And I said, hey, what's going on? What are you doing? And she goes, you said such a mean thing to me just then. <laughs> so like we take like any success or any kind of adulation that someone else gets and we see it as a personal slight to ourselves. You know, like, like that's, that's what I'm realizing, this like sibling rivalry. Um, between them. It has shown my own capacity. Anytime something good happens to someone else, I think, oh, you know, why couldn't that happen to me? You said such a mean thing, thing to, to me. me. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I, again, I mean, I think is a really powerful thing to think about, especially with the Weasleys and the way we see those characters take different journeys, I think has a lot to do with how they perceive their parents' judgment. Right. Um, and Fred and George deciding, you know, they're not going to participate in right. the rivalry that they see between the three oldest right. Weasley boys. Right. They're like, we choose our own path. Sorry, one more. T, I would never eat a pig, you, Zach. Well, you have before, baby. Remember when you ate bacon when we went camping? T, sigh. Why do pigs got to be made of bacon? Right. Such a good question. (laughs) Right. Zach, can you tell us a little bit about why did you say yes to doing it? Because it's a daunting task. And what have you learned from the experience? Like, how has it changed you? I think foster care is an issue that isn't discussed enough. Our country has 600,000 children in the foster care system, and it is an intersectional problem. Everything that we talk about as people who care about social justice is represented in the foster care community, racial injustice, LGBT issues, violence against women, the drug war and its terrible consequences, the prison industrial complex. Only or less than 10% of foster kids will graduate from high school. About a third of the population will end up in prison. Many of them will become pregnant at a very young age. They're much more likely to be involved in drug activity. And it's much more likely that their children are going to end up in the foster care system also. So it's this self-feeding monster of a problem. And I don't feel like we actually talk about it enough as a country right now. And so you know, for my wife and I, when we were um, deciding the type of family that we wanted to build, we wanted to do what we could. And what we could do... Um, was choose not to have biological children and welcome in just two of these 600,000 children into our home. And, you know, what I've learned is that there is mystery in every family. You know, I mean, um, I think part of the reason why sometimes people don't want to enter into foster care is because of the unknown of, of raising a kid, one that you haven't raised up to that point, which there are so many unknowns and so many mysteries in that. They're, they're worried that all those unknowns are going to somehow make that child less easy for them to care for. They're not sure if they can handle the emotional pain of not being able to keep a child um, that they've raised for several years, usually as a foster parent. But the truth of it is, is like, we don't know if we're going to be able to keep our biological children. Look at the world. There's so many uncertainties that even biological parents have to deal with. And so, you know, there are these, these kids who are ours as citizens to care for um, that aren't being cared for. And so I think it's our responsibility to care for them. I mean, and I look at Harry, you know, and Harry is in a home where he's not appreciated. Uh, In the chapter today, in chapter four, there was one bit where it said, as he's grabbing his possessions, he like checks the floorboards for all the food that he's stored away. And in this chapter, he's not storing his food because he's being neglected in some way. But I remember back in the first book when Harry misbehaves in some way and his parents or uh, his foster parents, essentially his uncle and his aunt, they withhold food from him and he becomes even more gaunt and skinny. And so he has to hide away food under the floorboards. And that's something that's so common with foster kids who experienced hunger. They will steal food and store it under their bed just in case um, they need it. Um, And so that was something that 
it reminded me of um, today. And there, there's so many vulnerable kids. And, you know, just like the Weasleys, you know, we we can choose to make them ours because they are ours. We all belong to each other. I love when Mr. Weasley in this chapter is like, Vernon, your nephew just said goodbye to you. Yes. Right? And it's there's something about when you like bring a child into your home, you're restoring dignity to that child. And I love that Mr. Weasley is restoring dignity to Harry, even in this house that pretty much only has bad memories for Harry. And in this moment, I feel like the Weasleys are creating a good memory for Harry at Privet Drive. Right. And it, it was so heartwarming for me to see Arthur, um, the, the imagery of him sticking out his arm and, and catching Harry and saying, wait, and then standing up for him. You know, this authority figure standing up to someone who was a negative authority figure and saying, this isn't right. But I also love that Arthur's first intuition is to treat the Dursleys with respect and genuine interest. He knows that Harry hates this place. He knows that they've mistreated Harry. He knows that they're not a family to Harry in the way that they were supposed to be. But he still chooses to treat them with respect and, you know, talk to them about their, like, cool muggle things that he finds interesting and, like, try to draw a bridge across that, that major difference. And I can't help but think about when I read this, I, every two weeks, I have to come into contact with my first foster daughter's biological parents. Even though I know that they've done things that would make my hair curl, even though I know that they've not done what they were supposed to do. But I have a choice to treat them with dignity and respect and to model that to my daughter and say, hey, this is an important part of who you are. Like you can't go back and erase that part of you and I'm not going to try to, but I'm going to treat these people who made you with respect. And I'm so glad that they, they were a part of making you who you are. Even if they've made mistakes, they're still human beings. I'm going to treat them with the respect that they denied you. So I love that Arthur does that. He's just like a stand-up foster dad. I think the choice that you've made, Zach, to be a parent to two of those 600,000 kids, as you, as you said it, is such a, it's a very brave thing to do. I mean, I, it shouldn't, have to be brave, but I, th- I think it's an amazing illustration of what family can be and the the things that seem maybe like really natural of like, oh, and then we'll have kids. It's like even that can be a place to put your values into action in a way that's quite radical and beautiful. And uh, yeah, I just I, I really appreciate it. Zach, thank you so much for being here and for bringing these hilarious, wonderful girls into our lives. They've They've been a gift to us. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. On to the 30-second recap. Vanessa, this is quite a short chapter, just 10 pages in my book. I believe you're going first. You can't just say that and let it be true. You're going first. Yeah. That was well done, though. <laughs> I was I was like, let me be really smooth. <laughs> okay, no, so going I'm going first. Have you got the time already? I have the time already. All right, hit it. On your mark, get set, go. So Harry is like getting his stuff ready and then um, they're expecting the Weasleys to arrive and, and Vernon's like, oh, you're, they're coming by car, right? And Harry's like, uh, actually, I don't know. And then there's like five o'clock and no one's there and quarter past five, no one's there. And it's like, oh, so inconsiderate and rude. And then like a noise behind the electric fireplace and there is Arthur and Fred and George and Ron and, um, and that's it. And they're stuck behind the thing and then they come out and blow explosion. And then um, things everywhere. Um, Dudley really scared and then they take him home it was actually my turn to go first what I played you what 
years of being a sister have come in handy. Well, okay, it's your turn, which should have been first. Here we go. Three, <laughs> two, one. Go. So Harry and the Dursleys are waiting for the Weasleys to arrive, and then the Weasleys arrive. They hear them in the chimney, and they're like, "Oh, help us out!" And so that um, the Weasleys get out by exploding the fireplace, and obviously Petunia and Vernon are like, "Well," and it's a hilarious moment where Arthur is like, "Beautiful place," even though it's like covered and everything, and. Um, uh, the kid Dudley is really worried um, about his butt, and then um, they get the thing, they get the trunk, and they go and they drop a toffee, and um, Dudley eats the toffee, and he keeps engorging, and Mr. Weasley is like, "I'll fix it." I love it. It's like the kid. <laughs> it's because it's Dudley Dursley. Yes. I always just want to call him Dursley. I'm with you. Thirty second recap problems. <laughs> it's a very privileged and specific problem, but we are doing. A fundraiser. You can donate to 30 Second Recap Problems at 30secondrecapproblems.com. So, Casper, let's start with what I see is the big mystery at the center of this chapter, which is the mystery and anxiety that the Dursleys are feeling about how the Weasleys are going to arrive, right? Mm -hmm. The Dursleys are pretty abhorrent in this book, but I do feel for them with how anxious they must be. I mean, this is their worst nightmare. It is wizards coming into their home. It just made me think, usually I think of mystery as a good thing, right? Like, ooh, what an exciting mystery, right? There's something like titillating and maybe even sexy about a mystery. You're like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. But in this, you get the real anxiety and existential angst that can be at the heart of a mystery. I mean, they're expecting people to arrive in brooms, in robes, in daylight, and the whole street's going to see them. No wonder they're freaking out. And then, you know, when you're waiting for something, and at first you're like, oh, well, they're going to come on brooms. And then your mind is like, they're going to come on brooms with 80 other people and dragons. And then, like, it just grows and grows. So by the time it's like 20 past five, these Dursleys are now imagining, like, basically a sort of wizard invasion of the whole of Privet Drive. Your mind just goes crazy. And then the mystery gets resolved of how they're going to arrive. And they're, I mean, it is like worse than their worst nightmare. <laughs> I mean, it's private, which is good news. But their whole living room gets exploded. And they don't know it can be fixed, right? Arthur's like, oh, don't worry about it. Like, I'll just put that back together. And all they see is just like thousands of dollars of damage. Well, in their experience, the damage that is done at the hands of a wizard is not fixed. We find out for the first time in this chapter that Dudley had to go to a private hospital and get his pigtail surgically removed. That must have been mortifying and expensive. So they have no idea that Mr. Weasley will actually be able to fix this. They think that their house has just been destroyed. Not only that, but, you know, Lily died. So for them, wizarding world equals danger. And every time they have an engagement with it, it seems to just confirm that. So I completely agree. I actually felt a little bit of empathy for the Dursleys in this chapter in the sense that the way that Dudley is moving around the room, keeping his backside to the wall to, like, never expose it to danger, the way that Petunia throws herself on him to protect him, this is not playing around. Like, that's actually really scary. So, Casper, what it reminded me of was this really interesting Radiolab episode where 
in the 60s during the Cuban Missile Crisis, this computer programmer slash political scientist named David Axelrod, not that David Axelrod, another one, he ran an experiment to see in these really like tight moments where two people are pointing guns at each other or in a prisoner's dilemma type situation, what strategy works the best in the long run? And you can listen to the episode. We'll link to it in our blog post if you want to hear more about it. But basically, the strategy that worked best in the long run, according to these like fascinating specific metrics, is that what you first do when you're in a mysterious situation is try the nice way, is try the kind way, is extend your hand. And then if you extend your hand and the person sort of slaps your hand away, you retaliate and you meet them. But then when you restart, you restart by extending your hand again. And so you want to show that anything that they do to you, you will match them, but that every single time you are going to start with good intentions. And I think that that is what we see is the difference between the Dursleys and the Weasleys, at least the difference between Vernon and Arthur. To some extent, this could be just as scary for Arthur as it is for Vernon. But Arthur goes in with a hand extended but not to the point where he lets himself or Harry or his family be abused, right? Once Vernon is rude, then he says, no, I will maintain the dignity of my family and of Harry. But I think that Arthur is really showing us a way to go into a mysterious situation, even when you're scared, even when you're overwhelmed, even when things do not go according to plan. And it turns out that these weird muggles have like stopped up their fireplace and still go in with an extended hand. I'm really interested in that. But I do think that Arthur underestimates how much of a mysterious situation this is for Vernon. Because the first thing from Vernon's perspective that happens is that here is a man who blows up my living room. That's the initial opening action. And that doesn't feel like a kind of handout stretched. From Arthur's perspective, absolutely. He's just trying to get through a wall. I can close it up in a minute. No big deal. It makes me think about the things that I think are commonplace or easy to understand to someone else might be very mysterious or unexplainable and therefore frightening. And I need to do the work of trying to figure out where that line is. You know, Arthur could have said, hello, my name's Arthur Weasley. I'm here to pick up Harry. I'm going to repair it in a minute, but I'm just going to create a little explosion. You know, I think that would have been an even better gesture of extending the hand. Yeah, I was thinking something similar that I think the biggest mystery that we all constantly are engaged with just in daily life is the mystery of not knowing the internal reality of the person right. who we're talking to. Right. I mean, we're a mystery to ourselves, right? It often takes me days to figure out why I'm in the mood that I'm in. And so, you know, when someone is rude to you, not having any concept of where they're coming from and that often they weren't even intending to be rude. Exactly. I mean, I think the biggest, most common mystery is miscommunication and it destroys lives, right? You think somebody did something and so you break up with them or you stop being friends with them. And these are just miscommunications because we are a mystery to one another and a mystery to ourselves. And to his credit, Arthur collects plugs and batteries, right? There's other parts of his life where he really is trying to understand other people's experience. But I think you're so right. You know, we really try and, you know, even for ourselves, manage the kind of unknown, mysterious parts of our lives. I mean, even Harry counting down 
down the days on the calendar until he goes back to Hogwarts is kind of a way of managing something that is beyond his own grasp in a way, like the way we engage with time. I think it can be mysterious, right? One day goes by so quick, the next feels like forever. Yeah, we kind of grasp at knowing things that maybe are just beyond us. Right. I think that part of the mystery here is generational muggle wizard secrets, right? right? Like these are two cultures that deeply do not understand one another and are a secret to one another and therefore are a mystery and a threat to one another. Absolutely. And and it's helpful to depersonalize what's happening here between Arthur and Vernon, especially into this much bigger cycle of confrontation and misunderstanding and real aggression between those two groups. That's something that's often forgotten. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. And there are some exciting mysteries that are at the heart of this. Harry has this great moment where he, like, knows that George and Fred are, like, up to no good, but he doesn't know what. And I feel like that's the kind of excitement of, like, oh, I'm watching someone pull a prank and I don't know where it's going, but I'm really excited, right? We see those positive mysteries in this chapter, too. But I think overall we're seeing the insidious nature of the unknown and how it brings out the worst in us and that it understandably brings out the worst in us and that it in part brings out the worst in us because of just generational trauma. This is making me think of a really small example, but um, I'd said to my husband, oh, I really like going out on like date days. Would you plan something? So kind of went through our calendar. Okay, we'll go on this Saturday. And I was like, I'm not going to know anything. You're in charge. And so we're going this weekend and he's planned a whole day. And I've known that the whole day is planned. But like yesterday, I couldn't contain my like eagerness to know this mystery anymore. And I was like, please just tell me, please just tell me. And he kind of laid out the day. We're going to Gloucester. It's very exciting. But I was so glad that he told me. And I feel like when is the moment when you want a mystery to no longer be mysterious? Like, when do you want to know? Part of it is the anticipation and excitement. Part of it is the kind of like little hint of danger in it, as we've talked about. And part of it is also the satisfaction when it's completed. And I think of mystery novels, right? The whole point of the book is finding out who did it or, you know, what's the solution to the riddle. And so kind of figuring out when is there the moment when anticipation becomes fulfilled, that seems really integral to a mystery because a mystery that stays a mystery forever, there's something unsatisfying about that. 
Yeah, well, so, like, I just hate mysteries. <laughs> I'm just too much of a control freak, and I'm like, you have to tell me where we're going so I can wear the right shoes, right. and I want to be warm enough. Right. I need all the information. <laughs> and, I mean, I think that we see that in Harry's calendar that you talked about being wrong, right? He was counting down to September 1st because Ron had not let him know about the Quidditch World Cup. And so because that stayed mysterious for too long, Harry had started to make other plans and had started to cope in this other way. And there's sort of no harm, no foul, but there's a little bit of harm in that Harry could have been counting down differently and that calendar could have said different numbers and he could have felt a different sense of hope. It's possible because he thought he had 15 days or whatever left on the calendar. He was eating less of the food that he had under the floorboards and was going to bed a little hungry. I just think that keeping people in the dark for too long has real material impact. Absolutely. You know, there's one very physical embodiment of that in this chapter where the Dursleys at some point have kind of blocked off the chimney. They've put an electric fire in. And I feel like that's a beautiful metaphor of the way in which the Dursleys engage mystery or the unknown or the other. Like, they're literally blocking off access to this other world. You know, it reminds us of the very first chapter in the first book where they didn't want to have anything to do with imagination. And I think that's where the other end of the line is, is that we do need to be somewhat open to the mysterious and the unknown and the unexpected guest who arrives in your chimney. Because, like, if we just control everything, we're never going to allow our imagination to break open something even better than what we already know. Absolutely. And I mean, what they're doing also on a very small level is if you're building your own fire in a fireplace, you don't know how well the wood is going to catch. And it's there's a little bit of mystery as to like how good of a fire it's going to be. But with an electric fire, you're going to have the same fire every single time. And there are pluses and minuses to that. But I mean, in Judaism, you have this great embracing of mystery in that way at the Passover Seder. So at Passover, you're supposed to invite in strangers. It's a mitzvah. It's a good deed, a positive commandment to have a stranger at your table. And to some extent, you know who that stranger is. You invite someone who's not a part of your family to come and partake in the Seder. But then there's this great moment where you send the child to the door to open the door for Elijah to come in. And you know, I've done Seder 35 times now, and the prophet Elijah has never come. But I love the idea of a child opening the front door and saying, like, we're just open to, like, hope and goodness coming in. And it's not just the open door. There's a seat and a glass, right? right. Like, we're really trying to embody that idea of welcoming right. something new. And so I, I feel like the Dursleys have built a fortress. Like there is no possibility. If you totally close yourself off to mystery, then Elijah can't come. I'm just seeing Petunia say to Dudley, Dudley, go and open the door for Elijah. <laughs> like what is the Dursley Seder like? <laughs> That's not happening at their Seder. <laughs> This week's spiritual practice is Lectio Divina. And just to remind us, this is an ancient Christian spiritual practice, really kind of codified by Guigo II, who was a Carthusian monk from the 12th century, who is sometimes referred to as the angelic. So the first level, first stage is really thinking narratively what's happening in this specific piece of the passage. The second layer is thinking allegorically. So what other symbols or stories, images, sounds does this remind us of? 
Thirdly, thinking about what resonates from our own experience. What in our own life do we recognize here? And then finally, what action are we called to do? Or, you know, in a traditional context, what is God asking us to do in this passage? And for us, you know, what's what's the text really telling us to do? So, Vanessa, will you choose a random piece of text from chapter four? And I know we still get questions of people asking us, do we really do this for real? Yes, my friends. Vanessa is literally pointing at a page. Okay, here we go. Well, they most certainly won't be, said Uncle Vernon, and Harry heard him stand up and start pacing the living room. Ooh. Can you read that one more time? Yes. Well, they most certainly won't be, said Uncle Vernon, and Harry heard him stand up and start pacing the living room. So let me, for step one, just put in a little bit of context because I needed to read the previous sentence. I only got it the second time around. I was like, when is that? So the previous sentence is maybe they'll think they'll get invited to dinner if they're late. So the Weasleys haven't shown up yet. It's 530. They're half an hour late. And Vernon and Petunia, I mean, like, they definitely don't hold with that nonsense. And Petunia says maybe they think they'll be invited to dinner if they show up around dinner time. And Vernon is like, well, they're not going to be invited to dinner and Harry is in the other room because he's like it is too stressful in that room so he removes himself but he can hear Vernon start to like pace in anxiety. I just love that that's the kind of thought that they have because it means that that's what they do to other people. Petunia has clearly timed her own visits elsewhere to be like oh oh to stay for tea well if you insist if you think like that means like you plan your own life like that. I see you Petunia. That's funny. I don't think it necessarily means that they do that. The other thing that it could mean is that they assume that people are always trying to take advantage of them. Yeah. And we, we've seen that before because Vernon's like, oh, they're probably asking for money on the street, right? Things like that. Right. And maybe that means that they're always trying to take advantage of other people and Ooh. always have an angle. But I don't think it specifically means she plays this dinner game. But it means, like, they're always looking for a leg up. Let's move to step two. So... We need to think very creatively here. This is the moment to let go of our kind of rational thought and just let unexpected connections enter. Will you read it one more time? Well, they most certainly won't be, said Uncle Vernon, and Harry heard him stand up and start pacing the living room. So what it reminded me of is the intimacy, and this is something we've talked about before on the podcast, but the intimacy that you can have with a space. I mean, just like literally a cushion being inflated. Harry heard him stand up. Hearing someone stand up, like, that is not a lot of noise that someone makes to stand up. I was really struck by that image of people waiting, and I thought of a hospital waiting room. And also the uncertainty, you know, if you're waiting on someone in an operation theater or waiting on a diagnosis, that kind of heightened awareness of time passing and a kind of helplessness. I saw them as kind of a hospital waiting room, which... You know, a kind of meta level in a way it is. They are in a waiting room. <laughs> yeah, they are literally in a waiting room. And it, although it's not Harry that they care about, we're going to learn about the prophecy. We're going to learn about the kind of, you could even say, diagnosis that hangs over Harry's life in a way. Well, and they're waiting to see, like, if the health of their child is going to be in peril again. I mean, you saying that reminded me, I, you know, just went to pick someone up from the airport and... 
and how attuned you get to every little sign that maybe your wait is almost over. I kept checking the board to see if the flight had landed, and then the flight had landed, and you're looking for a mass of people to come. And then you sort of start asking people, like, oh, did you get off the flight from Houston, right? And and you're, like, accumulating bits of information and knowledge that you wouldn't necessarily be attuned to, and you're imagining what outfit the person is going to be in so that you can sort of spot them more quickly. And how when you're waiting you start noticing things that you don't usually notice. And Harry notices, I'm sure that he doesn't usually notice the sound of Vernon standing up, but how sensitive your nerves get when you're waiting for something. Yeah. I want to just compare living room and waiting room. You know, I'm someone who loves planning and I love thinking about the future. And so much of my mind, I feel, is not present. It's such a cliche to say. But the idea of a living room is like, that's where life happens. And an idea of a waiting room, which this room has now become, is where life is on pause while you're waiting for the real thing to begin. And I'm just suddenly thinking about how we label space actually shapes what happens in that space in some, right? Like the, Or to quote John Lennon, life is what happens while you're busy making, making other the plans. plans. Right. So step three is where we really try and bring it into our own lives in a reflective way. Like what experiences have we had that connect to the text or give a new light to this piece of text? Will you read it one more time, Vanessa? Well, they most certainly won't be, said Uncle Vernon, and Harry heard him stand up and start pacing the living room. Is there something from your life that resonates with that? Yeah. So my dad was sick a lot in my childhood. He has a brain tumor. And Being a child in a waiting room, we weren't necessarily waiting for information. We were waiting while he was healing. Like, you can spend months of your life in a waiting room. And we would play Spit, the card game, for hours. And so the it just it's the opposite of what we were talking about. The waiting room sort of became our living room. It was like where we were for a summer, one summer. And so... I feel like you can change a place by bringing a deck of cards. What about you? What were you reminded of? I mean, this is kind of building on your reflection, but I think that is so much easier to do when you're not alone. And Harry is outside of this room, right? As you said, he's extricated himself because it's so intense. And you can see him trying to recreate elements of Hogwarts in his bedroom. And even with Hedwig, that helps a little bit. And letters from outside and the calendar and his spell books and his wand and things. But it's never really the same when you're doing it on your own. And so what I think about is actually, you know, some family traditions that I try and continue even though I live in a different country. And obviously my family's not with me. So... I'm very insistent about the way I do birthdays, and I'm very insistent about the way we do Sinterklaas, a Dutch festival where we write poems to each other. You know, it's a kind of effort to recreate, and it's my best effort to recreate it, but it is never the same if it's not with people who you can really recreate that magic with. So I'm just, I guess I'm feeling for Harry, even in that moment of waiting, he's alone, even though everyone is waiting, um, because it means something different for him. So this brings us to the final stage of Lectio, which is about thinking, what does this text have to say to us? What are we invited to do an action that we can take? Will you read it one final time? Yes. Well, they most certainly won't be, said Uncle Vernon, and Harry heard him stand up and start pacing the living room. 
this is kind of strange, but I've been really wanting to learn poetry off by heart. As a child, I knew a couple of poems, and there's something wonderfully, I don't know, uh, I, I both feel intellectually enriched and kind of artistically creative by being able to recite a little bit of poetry. And I'm just thinking of all the times when I'm waiting for something, if I'm on hold, if I'm waiting for a bus or I'm waiting for a train, to have a little poem in my pocket that I can work on learning. Because I would spend hours at the bus stop when I went to school every day. You know, it took me an hour and a half to get there and then an hour and a half to get back. And I did so much like talking to myself, so much imagining. I would learn a lot of homework, revise for exams. And I I don't engage with time in that way anymore. So I want to write a poem on an index card and put it in my pocket and learn it when I'm waiting for something. How about you? I mean, I just want to validate that because memorizing a poem, it also gives you the opportunity to begin to treat it as sacred. I always think of memorizing pieces of writing as writing it onto your heart because then they become expressions that are like easy on the tip of your tongue and then they become a truism in your life. So I'm a big believer in memorizing quotes and passages from things that mean something to you. I think that they become values that you can live then. I think what I feel called to is bringing more joy to spaces that are joyless. Mm. Um, You know, just like striking up conversations in line at the post office or in other situations. I think that, you know, I just I have my earphones in too often and trying to create more joy in these waiting moments is something that I feel called to. Vanessa, I literally just had that experience. I went to a concert. My husband was singing. And, you know, I was there kind of to support him and sat down. And at the interval, you know, the people next to me, two of them left and and the one person remained. It was a slightly older man. And he kind of made a remark about the program so far. And I responded, but kind of made it clear that I did not want the conversation to continue. I was on my phone. I was like, "Mm -hmm, please don't talk to me. (laughs) And then I was like, I don't have anything on my phone. Why don't I talk to this person? So I put my phone away and I turned to him and I asked him an engaging question. And we couldn't have been more different politically in terms of age. I think a lot of our values probably were different. But I learned a lot about being a substitute teacher in rural New Hampshire. And I learned about how he came to this particular concert every year with his wife and one of his daughters who lived here. And the mysterious unknown of who this person next to me was, which I had shut out kind of like the Dursleys with the fireplace. It took effort. Like I didn't want to. And and that's really important. But in that moment, I had the resolve and the, you know, emotional energy to kind of turn to him and embrace the mystery of what this conversation would be. And, you know, at a time when there is so much polarization in our culture, I feel like those kind of unknown interactions, if we feel safe and we have the energy to do it, are are so necessary. And so maybe that's something that we can invite all of us to think about doing as well, right? Like embracing that mysterious connection. Sometimes it's going to be fun. Sometimes it won't be, but. And I just want to echo the like when you feel safe, right? Because I don't know if I would if I had to sit through a whole second act of something with someone because I'm like, what if this goes bad? It's going to ruin the rest of the play for me and I'm going to feel trapped in this row. And so it's like being in line feels like a safe place to me because I'm like, I'll just mail this tomorrow. Bye. 
Which I know is a really ungenerous thing to do. No, but I think it's important to think about. And it was it was funny that you say, like, what if this second act is horrendous? Because throughout the whole second piece, which was Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, his wife was, like, in a full-body experience. Like, she was conducting, she was humming, like, she was stomping along, which usually would have driven me insane. But because I knew him and I knew what this meant to them— Actually, my heart was so much more compassionate. And I was like, you know what? Like, Beethoven isn't necessarily my favorite composer. I'm so glad you're enjoying this for (laughs) both of us. (laughs) This next voicemail is the most regular generic voicemail we've ever gotten from Tom Johnson. Hey, gang. This is Tom Johnson calling from Washington, D.C., giving the best man speech at Pete and Tara's wedding. Right, everyone? In your Florilegia analysis of Book 3, Chapter 1, your quotes were, P.S. Percy's head boy, and silhouetted against the golden moon, growing larger every moment. And to me, these quotes exemplify magic and mundane. So first you have Ron, who's on this amazing, magical, wonderful journey to ancient Egypt with his family but he still finds time to complain about his annoying brother, Percy. And on the other side, you have Harry, who's desperate. He's depressed with his day-to-day mundane life with the Dursleys. And all of a sudden, this symbol of all this love and magic and friendship and support appears out of nowhere uh, through the mundane sky and in front of the moon. So with that, I'd like to offer a blessing to Pete and Tara. Raise your glasses, please. As you receive your Hogwarts letters, you will encounter troll bogeys, the Rita Skeeters of the world, maybe even a few Dementors. But always remember that no matter what, because you're together, it's all magic. And and as you look forward to your amazing, magical, fantastic journey into the future, I want you to remember how you feel right now at this moment, so excited about that future, silhouetted against the golden moon and growing bigger every moment. Thank you. Tom, your head boy. (laughs) Screw Percy. (laughs) That was amazing, Tom. And many, many congratulations to Pete and Tara. I don't really know what to say. That was beautiful. And I'm so glad you shared it. Thank you. And most best man speeches are just so boring and like tell college stories that none of us were there for. This is amazing. (laughs) Casper, it is now time to offer a blessing. Whom would you like to bless this week? My blessing is for Arthur and, and a little bit for Zach as well. I think the way in which, you know, all of the Weasleys, but especially Arthur shows up in Harry's life, which is always full of interest and openness and eagerness to learn, as well as like a protective, safe force who's, you know, he wants always to be honest with Harry about the real dangers that are out there and shows up. He goes and gets him. He goes and picks up this kid and brings him home. And I guess this blessing is for anyone who has gone out of their way to make a child safe and welcome and loved. How about you? 
I sort of have the same blessing. I'm going to be blessing Petunia, but for exactly that reason, for throwing her body on to Dudley, right? I think that anybody who is willing to put themselves in danger in order to protect somebody else, I mean, in Judaism, it is the highest calling that you can do. If you've saved a life, you've saved the world. I mean, the whole series is about Lily giving her life for her son. And here we see that Lily's sister Petunia would do the exact same thing. So for Zach and Arthur and Petunia in this moment, I'd like to offer a blessing. Thank you. Thank you. As Zach left the studio earlier, we asked him to send us a little voice recording from home. So here is a little snippet of family life. What do you think? What does the public want to know about you? I'm A. I'm T. And I'm six years old. And I am five years old. What are some things that you guys like to do? I like to talk about my family, eat dinner, and um, say um, I love my whole family. That's really sweet. I have a dog named Stunk, uh-huh. and Skunker. I like to pet him. Now I have a little sister, and now she's going to talk. And she, Now her name is... Name is T. What's up, T? What are some things that you think are funny? When A, <laughs> when A says poopy butt cheeks. Poopy butt cheeks? That's funny. That is funny. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and, of course, on the Facebook. Leave us a review on iTunes, and if you find an authentic way to use the word tiger in your review, we will say your name and thank you on air. Please send us a two-minute voicemail, and next week we will be reading Weasley's Wizard Wheezes through the theme of masculinity. This episode was produced by Ariana Nettleman, Vanessa Zoltan, and me, Casper Terkyle. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. Thanks to Thomas Johnson for this week's voicemail. Harshi Hetege is our social media manager. Thanks to Rebecca and Charlie Ledley and Stephanie Purcell. We'll see you all next week. Bye, everyone. Bye. All right, T, you want to tell a joke? Knock, knock, who's... Who's there? All of. All of who? All of you. I love you, too, you little... No, it's just all of you. Yeah, but it's saying I love you. That's what makes it funny. It's not actually what you think it is. Oh, it's just all of you? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.